Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. We are recording this on Wednesday, February 9th, 2022. Our guest today is former prosecutor and current criminal defense attorney, Robert K. Corbett, who is joining us from Charlotte, North Carolina. Robert, welcome back to the program. Hey, thank you for having me. I enjoy being here. Oh, we love having you. We love having you. I love your take on everything. I love following your Instagram. We've got two cases that I can't wait to hear your comments on. They're radically different, but they really make us look at the criminal justice system and everything around it. So here's what we're looking at. A young mother committing the unthinkable. Police say that she stabbed her child to death after hearing threats coming from the cartoon character SpongeBob SquarePants, who was on the TV, the mother told the police that he, SpongeBob, was telling her to hurt her child. And if she didn't hurt her child, SpongeBob would hurt the mother. It's absolutely ludicrous. The mother has a history of drug abuse, according to police, and allegedly admitted to taking cocaine on the day of the murder. A judge has ruled her mentally fit. She will stand trial. The judge is not buying SpongeBob's story, right? She's just not buying it. So that's one case. We're going to look at that later. But first, what happens when someone has an identical twin and is accused of murder? I'm fascinated by this case. Can you ever be sure that you have the right twin? It never occurred to me, Robert, that we'd even be having this discussion because it doesn't come up that often in crime cases, right? Yeah, it certainly doesn't come up often. Um, And when you sort of think about it, the only times, well, DNA has become such an important tool in crime solving and everyone has a unique DNA profile. But the only time where it's going to be an issue will be like this one of where identical twins would have the same identical exact DNA profile. 
but DNA doesn't appear to be an issue in this case, or it doesn't appear that they use DNA in order to solve this case. But that's where you do have to kind of consider that of where right. someone says, hey, it wasn't my DNA. Well, it's unique to you unless you have an identical twin. And in this case, he did. It's just amazing. It's like, you know, when it comes to crime and solving crimes, we rely so heavily on witness identification, on security videos, right, of right. the alleged perpetrator, the complexities of matching DNA and familial DNA. So all of this is unfolding right now in a Chicago murder case. Kevin Dugar was convicted of murder in 2005 and sentenced to 54 years in prison. The death occurred during a gang shooting with a rival gang, according to prosecutors. The victims are Antoine Carter, he was killed, and Ronnie Bolden, who was injured. Okay, so here's the thing. So Kevin Dugar has always insisted that he was innocent. He even rejected uh, a plea offer, which is very interesting. The, the deal would have been this, that it would have cut his prison time down to 11 years. So he likely would have been released five years ago had he taken that deal, but he didn't. So again, I, I know we have this discussion. Everybody claims that they're innocent. Everyone in prison is innocent, but he didn't take a deal that would have been a lot sweeter. Okay. So now Kevin has been released from prison after 20 years because his identical twin wrote a letter Okay, his twin is named Carl, Carl Smith. Carl Smith admitted to being the person who did the shooting, the trigger man. Okay, I, we're going to put up the pictures for you. For those of us who are watching, you'll be able to see this and judge for yourself. If you're listening, I'm going to describe them. So Kevin is the one who was convicted. Kevin will be on the left. Carl is the one who is now admitting to being the killer and is on the right. Now, except for some slight differences, I would say, in their cheeks, their mouth, and, and facial hair, which you can change, they really are identical. Just, it's unbelievable. So, also, they have different last names, and the, the reason being that Carl, the one who says he did it, took his mother's maiden name. All right, so here, here we have um, twins, identical twins. Now, you, what you also need to realize is that both of them have been in prison. So um, Carl, who's now saying that he's the real killer, is in prison probably for the rest of his life, is out of appeals, and that's going to factor into the believability of his story. So the twins, Carl and Kevin... They both admit growing up that up until the time that they were eight years old, they used to dress alike. They admit that they did what I call twin shenanigans, always pretending to be the other twin, whether in a social situation or for their purposes, um, crime enterprises. <laughs> they claim, you know, both of them had the same street name, twin. And they said that they operated as one. The twins operated as one. So I think it's very possible that depending on the business transaction, you may or may not have known which one you were dealing with. Robert, what do we do with this? Well, when I first heard about it, um, I was thinking in terms of what happened at the initial trial stage. It wasn't unknown to prosecutors and law enforcement that these 
Carl, the well, Carl's the one who did it. Smith is the one who um, was convicted. Trial, was convicted. So it wasn't right. unknown to prosecutors. No, no, no. Hold on. Theater. Wait a minute. I know it's very confusing. So Kevin, Kevin is the one who was convicted. Carl is the one who's saying he did it. Right. So it wasn't unknown to law enforcement or prosecutors that Kevin had a twin brother, um, a twin brother who was living that same type of lifestyle. Um, the eyewitness only stated that it was twin. So for them to go forward, it would let me think that they knew that Carl or had some information that Carl was not around at the time or that Carl could have been ruled out as a possible suspect or something that lets them focus on one twin more so than the other, because it doesn't appear that you have any forensic evidence, no DNA, no fingerprints. You just have an eyewitness who says, hey, I know the guy who did it. And I pick him out of a lineup. And to further confuse things, Carl, the one who is now admitting that he did it, he apparently was stopped by police after the shooting, and he claimed to be the other twin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here you have one of the twins, Carl, the one now admitting it, gets stopped by police. He says, no, no, I'm I'm actually Kevin. I presume he had to have shown them ID. So I'm starting to, because this one was bothering me last night, honestly. <laughs> last night, I'm like, something's wrong about the stop. I'm like, how did he? And then I realized, oh, I'm such a dope. I'm like, hello, they could very well have two sets of identification on them. Right. <laughs> So I, I okay so so all of that is continuing to be quite confusing. Now here's what's really important about what you're saying Robert about witness identification and about you know who remembers what. Mm -hmm. So the evidence against Kevin, this is the one who was convicted, relied on the testimony of two eyewitnesses, one of whom recanted on the stand during his trial. So the shooting victim who survived said that he waited months. This is the other tricky part of this conviction. He says that he waited months to ID the shooter, like who it was and then maybe which twin it was, because he said he planned on settling the score himself. Right. Very That's believable. Right? Totally believable. I mean, if any of, of all the things I've heard here about this case, that actually makes perfect sense to me. So now there's an, an, a delay in IDing it. This is the the person who's been shot, right? Um, it And if you're working with both of them, I don't know if you all have had this experience with twins. Like I grew up with twins and, and I've had twins in my life. And if you meet both of them at the same time, for me, it's always, it's they're identical it's beyond confusing. If you only have a relationship with one of them and then you meet the other one, you can always tell which one you know, even though you're still staring at the other one in fascination at how identical they are. I mean, that's that's my experience, Robert. I, I, I that, that may seem silly, but in an enterprise like this, if you meet twin and you find out that there are two of them and you meet them at the same time, how are you ever going to remember which is which? Right. Um Depending on like, the circumstances, especially something like this, if it's at night, it happens quick, it's an uh, exciting event, um, definitely a traumatic event, you might not be able to tell in terms of which one that you're dealing with at that particular time. And I want your opinion on this. So getting back to eyewitness accounts and verifying things, which we all know can be very faulty, Kevin, the one who was convicted, was identified 
as the shooter from a lineup that didn't include his twin. Please explain that to me. Why would you exclude the twin from the lineup? Well, yeah, and that that does make it sort of tricky. When law enforcement presents a lineup to an eyewitness, you want to get people that sort of look similar in terms of having same characteristics, same complexion, same hairstyle, if they have a tattoo, if they wear glasses, don't wear glasses. But it would be impermissibly suggestive to put both twins in the same lineup. If I was the defense attorney, then you're saying that that sort of lessens the odds as to who the witness is going to pick out. But then you do have that issue of how do you reconcile or how can you say for certainty that it is the right person? So it makes sense not to put both twins in the lineup, but I have to guess that the prosecution also had to have something else at trial, also something else for that witness to say he was able to discern which twin it was at that particular moment. It's fascinating. I mean, this case, everything that's happened since then just makes it that much more complicated than it. And I'm sure that it was extremely complicated at the time and in the moment when you're dealing with with twins. Absolutely. With street names and and, and there's confusion even among colleagues here. So um, one of the things that prosecutors are saying that they say that Carl the one who admitted to this, had absolutely nothing to lose by admitting this and is actually doing his brother a favor. And that's what really is the motivation here. They say that because Carl is already serving a 99-year prison sentence for a home invasion robbery in which a child was shot in the head, that he has nothing to lose, especially because Carl has no appeals. He doesn't have another move like Kevin does with the letter that his brother uh, wrote. So that's why the prosecution is just still refusing to accept that. Now, the courts have been different here. So when this information came to light, when Carl writes a letter saying, I did it, I'm so sorry, forgive me, brother, then that makes it possible for Kevin to then go to his attorney and say, help me, because now there's new evidence, new information, right. there's a confession. But... um. Here's the thing, Robert. Confessions, especially when they're coming from the prisons, prison system itself, tend to not always, you know, carry a lot of weight. Is that correct? There's a lot of suspicion about it. Um, I'd agree that there's definitely suspicion and that you want to sort of figure out in terms of what is the motivation behind it. But I would agree in terms of that's more of a question of weight versus admissibility meaning that that information is relevant, that information should come in, um, and it will be up to a jury to decide how much weight they want to give to that in terms of that Carl has waited X amount of years, that Carl never came forward before. Carl is not getting out of prison for the rest of his life, and that's up for the new jury to weigh in as to they, how they want to factor that new information. And the prosecutor has not figured out yet what to do here in this case, whether there will be a new trial. I have a feeling a new trial would be really difficult, you know, really confusing. But, you know, that will be the prosecutor's decision. Now, um, I I don't want to lose sight of the fact that we are talking about a very serious crime here. This is the, the commission of a murder. And that even if Carl or Kevin, I mean, everyone's in, somehow associated here, either convicted or claiming with very serious crimes. But I, I'm going to take a little detour on the on the life of um, 
of this family. So these identical twins, because they've been in the prison system, they have not seen each other in decades. And their mother has not seen them. And here's the amazing thing. When they brought Carl, the one who's making the admission, to a courtroom to, you know, go on the stand, um, make this admission in court about the letter, all of this, it's the first time the twins saw each other, were in the same room, and their mother was in the courtroom, and everyone was crying. Nobody could touch each other, but you've got... Carl on the stand, Kevin, you know, behind the the table, and then you have the mother in, you know, the gallery where the people sit and everyone's crying because it's the first time everybody's seen each other in 38 years. Like, how crazy is that? Yeah, I mean, especially in terms of, like I said, for that family, that mother has lost two sons to the criminal justice system. And that's not to make a lot of the fact that there's another family that lost their loved one yes. who was tragically killed. So there are no winners in a case like this. Everyone is suffering at some point. Yes, absolutely. But I just really, you know, when you look at this and, and so much loss and trauma and crime, and then you see how it affects a family from a different perspective, it's just like that to me was a window into something we don't often discuss. So it was an attorney at Northwest Pritzker School of Law that took on Kevin's case. And the letter of confession was written in 2013, and then they went to court to get the case dismissed in 2018. This would be the murder charge against Kevin. But the judge ruled that the confession wasn't credible and denied it. Are you really surprised? Um, I would be. uh, I am somewhat in terms of at this stage, because there you have post-conviction relief uh, and it's called like different things in, in different states so he's gone through his normal course of appeal saying that there was something wrong in the trial and at this stage you only get review or one of the things that you can get review for if you are able to show there is new evidence evidence that could not have been uncovered at the time of the trial so here they were saying we could not have known this at the time of the trial that the twin brother did it and i think that although i guess we say it's discretionary but i would agree that they should have erred on the side of caution and said, hey, this is new evidence that a jury would could have considered. And if they did, could have reached a different decision, which is what I guess like the later court did. Yes, exactly. So, you know, Kevin's attorney claims that this confession, this evidence could not have been uncovered at the time, as, as you have just said. So on appeal, the Illinois Court of Appeals overturned the conviction. And this happened in 2021. The judges said that a jury hearing all the evidence available now would not reach the same conclusion. They would likely not convict Kevin knowing all that we know now, whether you believe it to be true or not. So that is why the Court of Appeals said this is overturned and you will be released. So Kevin was released two weeks ago on January 28th. He is now mostly a free man. I want to ask you about this. He's currently in something called transitional in a transitional facility for the next 90 days. Is that that he's he's still a free man, right? Yeah, well, like I say, he's he's free and obviously in terms of out of out of custody. And then but even though the case is overturned, like you alluded to earlier, the prosecutor still has to decide what they're going to do with this case. Are they going to dismiss it? 
Are they going to make a new offer that probably gives him credit for time served? Because no one is going to get out of jail and then agree to go right back in and serve additional time. Or are they going to want to try to take this case to trial again? And like you said, in terms of that would be more chaotic or just a mess because now you can have each brother take the stand and point the finger at each other and the jury would be left to say, well, whom do we believe? I don't know. And with no DNA evidence, no forensic evidence, all based on eyewitness testimony, and now you're dealing with identical twins. Oh, my gosh. I don't know what Cook County is going to do on this one. I really mm-hmm. don't. Yeah, it'll be interesting when the Cook County has had their fair fair share of interesting cases. So, <laughs> Yes, they have. All right. Before we move on to our next case, here is a quick word from our sponsor. Well, we're now in February and those New Year's resolutions may or may not have continued in your house. But for anyone looking to make mealtime so much easier, it is time to check out HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients to your door, including farm fresh produce that arrives within a week. So you get the convenience without skimping on the quality. Their fit and wholesome recipes offer satisfying and nutritious meals that you can feel good about. There are six recipes per week to choose from, including low calorie and carb conscious options. And HelloFresh is 72% cheaper than a restaurant meal of the same quality. So I've got to tell you, my box was filled with truly fresh produce, which I couldn't believe that it was better than anything I could get at the market. And I'm not just saying that. I was truly impressed with the potatoes, the onions and the peppers. And then as far as the meats went, I got both ground beef that was nice and lean. I got pork chops and chicken cutlets. And I got the recipes plus all the little ingredients that you need to spice everything up. I really love that, but I'll also tell you that I kind of do things my own way. I don't always follow the recipe. So go to hellofresh.com slash TCD16 and use code TCD16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Who doesn't want a free gift? That's hellofresh.com slash TCD16. Don't forget to use code TCD, that's for True Crime Daily, 16, for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Our next case is out of Michigan, where a mother is accused of stabbing her three-year-old daughter to death. This is a horrific case. Police say the 22-year-old Justine Johnson told an investigator that the cartoon SpongeBob SquarePants was on the TV and that she heard voices through the television. And she claims that SpongeBob told her to kill her daughter And if she didn't do it, then she, the mother, would be hurt herself. Really? I mean, and I know we're going to get into the seriousness of this, but, you know, sometimes people make allegations that they're watching incredibly violent things and that the violent material or content spurs them into violence. But we're talking about SpongeBob SquarePants, who lives in a pineapple under the sea. Do you you know what we're saying? This is a children's cartoon. It isn't violent at all. You know, I realize we're going to talk about hallucinations and, you know, possibly the influences of drugs and who knows what kind of mental illness. But to make that suggestion of something that is inherently the content is not violent at all, you know, because we see that all the time, don't we, Robert, that that the that the excuse will be I was playing a violent video game. I was listening to violent music. It was always the violent content that made me do it. 
Right. And that's like, I went immediately to the video game analogy. But yeah, so it's definitely no one can say that they misinterpreted something from the cartoon or that made them numb to something. That's why they did this um, heinous act of violence. But, you know, like I said, in terms of she has a history of drug use um, and even though she's been found competent to stand trial, that doesn't mean that there can't be some defense raised as to either some mental illness or that she suffered or her capacity was diminished because of those drugs. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think everything played a role in this. No sane person would do this. And when I mean that, I don't mean it in a medical term. I just mean it. It's like, you know, mothers are not supposed to kill their children. You know, it's pretty basic. You're not supposed to harm your child. You must do everything in your power to protect your child, which is what always makes me so angry when a parent does something either against a child or a child does something against a parent who is elderly. It just undoes me. It really does. So the victim here is a little girl named Sutton Moser, and she had just turned three years old two days before the murder, okay? And the biggest thing in a child's life when they're three is their birthday party and their birthday cake. You know, it doesn't get any bigger than that in their world. So it was the little girl's uncle, the mother's brother, who discovered the dead child. Sutton had been stuffed into a trash bag like she is just a discarded piece of garbage. And apparently the child's foot was sticking out of the trash bag. The mother was not home when the girl's body was found, according to court records. So the murder happened in Escada Township, which is about 200 miles north of Detroit. And this happened in September, September 16th of 2021. But these details really have not come out until now because the court records have been released. And so that's why we really wanted to talk about this case. So Justine shared a home with her two brothers, One of them, a minor, is the one who found the little girl in the black trash bag that was then in a blue tote bag that was outside in the the back. And there was this tiny little human foot that was sticking out. Okay, so at least the brothers did the right thing. They called the police. Now, the mother was not in the house at the time. Um, Are you, I think... You know, Robert, I think here the fact that one of the brothers is a minor is going to be key here. Not only did he, you know, find the child, help to call police, but he also witnessed his sister uh, abusing drugs that day. And he had tried to say something to her, but she just blew him off. And he is a minor. So, I mean, this poor kid can't possibly have responsibility for any of this. Oh, no, not at all. But when when I heard you say that he plays a, a key part... It made me think in terms of it plays a key part in that that can be considered an aggravating factor in terms of when the prosecutor is seeking a particular sentence. The fact that a minor child had to witness this or witness any part of this, I think, just adds to the tragedy of it. Oh, I see what you're saying. The fact that and, you know, of course, Justine is claiming innocence here, but we will just say she's charged with this. So what you're saying is that Justine then exposed her younger brother to this level of violence, whether he witnessed the act or not. He apparently did witness her drug use and who knows what else was going on. So in a way, a crime has been committed against him in the way um, her actions um, occurred in his presence. You know, exactly. So even they don't charge um, crimes like um, child endangerment. So mm-hmm. even if they don't charge her with that, that will definitely be used as an aggravating factor at sentencing, assuming it goes that far. 
Interesting. Okay. So according to court records, Sutton, the little girl, was stabbed in the chest, in the neck, in the abdomen. Her body was wrapped in a comforter, and then that comforter was put in the bag. Also in the bag, according to court records, a bloody pair of jeans and a black sweater, which apparently belonged to the mother, and investigators believe that is what the mother was wearing when she killed the child. So how important is any of that potential evidence? Well, judges already ruled that she's competent for trial. And one of the things that can be used in a murder case to show premeditation, deliberation, can be not only to show what you did before the crime occurred, but to show what you did afterwards. So in terms of to be able to show that she's taking some time to sort of cover up her tracks, allegedly to try to get rid of the clothes that she had on, that's going to play a part in the state's theory in terms of how she premeditated this, she deliberated this heinous act, and then carried it out and then tried to cover it up. Police say that they found bloodstains on the closet door, on the sofas, in the bedroom where they say is where the crime occurred. They say they also found three knives that were found in the bedroom. So let's talk about, as you just raised, what was going on in Justine's life before the murder and after the murder. So on the day of the murder, Justine was acting weird. She apparently was wandering around a graveyard and then passed out there for a while. Then she went to her own apartment, attempted to kill herself, uh, but then somehow she ends up killing her child. So a lot of this is unclear. And, you know, it may be unclear because sometimes when people act erratically, we cannot, we can't clarify that for you because it is not logical. These are not logical yeah. actions. So then the following morning, this is the morning after Sutton is killed, officers found Justine again, just wandering around. She told them that she blacked out and doesn't remember the killing. That's awfully convenient. It's awfully convenient. Could be true. Could not be true. Right. The only she can really say that one way or another. But yeah, just kind of a built-in excuse for her to try to distance herself from what happened. Absolutely. I mean, come on. Between the SpongeBob tail and then the, you know, the acting erratically, it's just, it's all too much. Okay. The So I want to get back to when she's apprehended by police. Justine Johnson was very calm and unemotional, say the arresting officers. And that she didn't wish to talk about the death of her daughter. Well, I bet not. Yeah, I bet that was just a little uncomfortable, wasn't it? Well, yeah, you want to distance yourself away. Try to forget that if you can. So at the time of the killing, this is again all through court records, Justine was supposedly going through heroin withdrawals. No doubt that is very painful and very hard. And she stated that she had not slept in two weeks and she had admitted to doing cocaine on the day of the murder. That is just a bad combination. Yeah. And like I said, all that will will play in part um, in terms of as she tries to craft a defense. So it's not enough to absolve her completely, meaning that based on what we know thus far, it's not enough for the judge to instruct. Because some defenses that if 
if they are proven that you can be found not guilty of them. So that's not enough, in my opinion, in terms of a defense of where she could be found not guilty. But it could be enough of a defense of where she if she went to trial and was convicted, she could be convicted of a lesser charge. Mm. And then getting back to that minor brother, her her brother who's underage, who apparently saw her doing the cocaine and then he confronted her. And um, it has been relayed that she said to her brother, quote, mind your own effing business. So, I mean, again, here is a young person trying to do the right thing and, um, you know, certainly not in a position of power to have overwhelmed her in any way. I mean, you know, this is a minor. I don't, we don't know how old this boy is, but at the end of the day, your older sister is in a bad way. You know, you do your best, but, you know, it could have ended up deadly for him as well. Right. Or they will look at it as that she had an opportunity to take a different path, that her little brother came up and tried to stop her, and she didn't take advantage of that and went through with it anyway. Yeah. So Justine's been in prison since November without bond. Um, she has pleaded not guilty to one count of felony murder and not guilty to one count of first-degree child abuse. The judge has determined her mentally fit to stand trial, so that's where we are with this case. I don't, I don't, you know, the fact that she is mentally fit, how do, you know, someone who's in such a drug-induced state, is there ever any leniency on that? And believe me, I'm not asking for it. In fact, I'm, I may throw the book at her. How dare you? You knew better. Someone tried to help you and stop you. Killing your child was not the answer, and SpongeBob didn't make you do it, lady. Right, and it can. When you say, um, "Can there be any leniency?" There, there can be. How much? So, um, not very much. For instance, will we say there's enough leniency and grace for her to have a charge reduced down so that she receives probation? No. Is there enough leniency or grace such that she wouldn't have to serve life in prison if she pled guilty? Certainly, I, I could see that. So she could. So this case proceeds in terms of she doesn't take the plea offer and proceeds to trial. Her drug use, her history would be something that I would expect her defense team to raise at trial. And it would be up to that jury to determine how much weight they want to give to that in terms of when what verdict they ultimately come down with. This case just turns my stomach really just turns my stomach really yeah those types of cases where it involves a a child death are never easy to deal with on either side never a death at the hands of your mother no no all right thank you for your comments on that one robert thank you it is time for our comment section these are the crime stories that you all are talking about on social media now if you missed last week's episode my heart will be broken. However, if you did, you may not know that our own Michael has moved on to the world without crime. <laughs> he has left us. And we have a place like that exists? A, 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 yes, where Owen is traveling to. He wishes it to be. <laughs> In fact, I'm thinking of joining uh, Owen. <laughs> in a crime-free world. But if you missed last week's episode, then um, you may not know that Owen Michael has left us and we have a new producer now, Will Updike from the great state of Montana. Will, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. 
so we got an interesting one for you this week. A burglar turned the tables, leaving $200 to his victims after he was caught inside their Santa Fe, New Mexico home. So apparently after breaking in through a window, he reportedly ate shrimp, drank beer and took a bath before his victims returned to find him standing in their home with a scoped AR-15 rifle. Now, he didn't take anything, and he felt embarrassed enough to leave his victims compensation for their troubles. But uh, let's see what the people had to say. Uh, Danielle says, this is the most American break-in I have ever heard of. I I guess that's a reference to our love of shrimp and beer and automatic rifles. Uh, Maybe. (laughs) Alexis said, burglar? No. Visitor. Uh, Steph said he did that very backwards. Can he come over to my place next? Honestly, $200 as compensation for uh, some beer and some shrimp. I feel like maybe you're coming out uh, ahead there. Uh, I think there was a tip, right? There was a tip include 20%. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, definitely some gratuity on that. Katrina said he turned a robbery into an Airbnb situation, which (laughs) pretty close, honestly. Uh, And Miriam said cheaper than a hotel was probably his thinking. Which, I mean, depending on what city you're staying in, might not be wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't know about you guys, but uh, I have personally had house guests who were worse than this. Uh, and they did not leave a $200 tip, although they didn't come in with an AR-15. So That you know of. <laughs> that I know of. <laughs> yeah, it's the gun that's going to hurt them the most. I say you might have a, something to argue in terms of, hey, I went there, I went to the wrong house. Um, I left money, but then we bring in the gun into it and a assault rifle and pointing it at people. I think that'll be his ultimate downfall. But is it not a mitigating factor that he was clean and he took a bath? Come on now, Robert. Well, I I, I would argue it and I've argued less um, before and probably argue less in the future. Um, but sometimes you just have to play the cards that you dealt and that's all his attorneys are going to have. So I'll have to do that. <laughs> too funny i love it i love it ate shrimp left 200 bucks took a bath my kind of guy <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much will we'll see you next week absolutely see you then well that's our episode for this week robert where can people find you either on social media or your website i'm sure i can be found on instagram uh my instagram handle is going to be unoriginal like probably every other lawyer you know but it's robert k corbett c-o-r-b-e-t-t-e-s-q for esquire and our website is cmlaw-nc.com and i encourage you to follow his instagram because sometimes you just have the funniest things up there you haven't been doing um you know the lip dubbing in a while i miss that well, I told my um, social media manager, a.k.a. my 13 and a half year old son, that he needs to get back on it because, like I said, as always, he likes these video games and these VR games. So he needs to earn his keep uh, and he has to keep my ear to the street in terms of what trends are coming or things that his age group are interested in. Oh, I love it. It's so funny. It really is a funny thing. You can find me at Anna G News. Um, you know, I read your comments. I really do. I'm going to do a shout out to to one of you today. Raven Montreal, that's your handle on Instagram. Thank you for your comment. You really made me laugh. This is what she said. <laughs> she said that she sits in her driveway waiting for the episode to finish before getting out of her car. That just made me laugh. I just, I, that's like one of the best compliments anyone could, could pay us to this program. And we are truly grateful for you. So, you know, 
I read your comments and I respond. I love it. So we also want to make sure that we say a big thank you to our official sponsor for this program, HelloFresh. Thank you for sponsoring our podcast. You can find all our podcasts, all our episodes, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and sign up to receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. <laughs>